Good morning. Lovely to see you all here. Happy New Year for, to all of you. I hope you've had a wonderful evening and a wonderful morning. Uh, for those who have been kept up to all hours of the uh, night, I will try and be as entertaining and as interesting as I can. Uh, I have woke up at three o'clock, so I'm going to need to be. But let us preach this gospel. Let's hear this wonderful letter which talks about some important truths about Christianity and the importance of living out the gospel in our lives as we work as God's partners. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are a great and glorious God. We thank and praise you that you have gathered us here this morning, that where we hear your word, you will work in us. We ask, Father, that this morning as you teach us what it means to live out the gospel, that we will indeed live lives worthy of the calling that you have given us in Christ, that we might live for his sake and for his glory. We ask as we think through Philippians and the issues that it brings up of partnership, of disputes, of seeking to be unified in the gospel, help us to understand how our unity is achieved through your love and through your sacrifice in Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. There are a lot of clubs, there are a lot of groups in the world that you just recognise them as soon as you see a sign or a mark or a logo. And we're going to do a little test on that right now. And we're going to see if you recognise what these groups are. First one. Oh, come on, come on. Hands up. What is it? What does it represent? I would have said cheap food, but it's no longer cheap. I just would have said bad food that's very expensive. But McDonald's, obviously. Okay, next one. Red Cross. What does the Red Cross, what does that symbolise? At helping people. It's, a, it's an organisation that is dedicated to the aid of people who are in trouble. And as soon as you see that Red Cross sign, you know, here are people who are there to help me. Here are people who are going to give me medical needs. You know what the symbol represents. Okay, this one. Bit tougher? No, it's not UNICEF. I, I, I cut the name out. What was it? What did you call say, Joe? It is, it is Greenpeace's sign. That's the symbol for Greenpeace. I took the, that has a giant Greenpeace logo out of it, but I thought, I can't have the name. Same with the McDonald's one. I had the McDonald's name. I thought, well, that one's easy, but Greenpeace. Now, this is Greenpeace. What does Greenpeace represent? Environmental activism. Not always very scientific activism, but that's what they represent. Okay, here's one. What is that? Who are they? <laughs> yeah, that is youth group on Friday night. The front one, the, the short one, Steve. But anyway, <laughs> who is that? Star Wars. What are they though? Stormtroopers. So they represent evil, even though they're dressed in white. They represent oppression and dictatorships. But that's what they represent, and it doesn't matter what they're dressed in, as soon as you see what they, uh, see their clothing, it doesn't matter if they're dressed in white, you know what they represent. Okay, the last one, the last one. 
Yes, Australian cricket, it's a baggy green. One of the most apparently prestigious emblems in sport that you can only get a baggy green if you play for Australia. So it represents an elitism, something that is very hard to obtain, that very few people can obtain in Australia, and it shows that you are an excellent cricketer who gets paid lots of money for hitting a ball or throwing a ball down a wicket really fast. But in each of these... Uh, each of these examples you see, as soon as you see that symbol or that mark, you know what you're talking about. You know what the group's about. You know what it represents. You know what is important to that particular group. If we say Christian, what comes to mind? What stands out? What are the marks? What are the characteristics? What are the things that make and should call out Christian? Here is what we stand for. Here is what we believe. If you come to a Christian gathering, this is what you should expect to get. Today we're going to be looking in this first letter of Philippians. And Paul is going to outline three of the marks that you should expect of Christians. And they are simply prayerfulness, gospel humility and sacrificial love. And we're going to see how these three marks, and these are not the only ones, these are the ones I'm coming out of this letter in this first section, but we're going to see how these marks, these characteristics, facilitate our partnership in the gospel. So that's where we're going today. We're looking at these three marks of prayerfulness, gospel humility and sacrificial love and how they facilitate our partnership in the gospel or partnership as God's people. And as we come to the letter of Philip. Uh, Philippians. We're going to look at this over the next four weeks. We do need to have a little bit of background about uh, the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi in Paul's day was a Roman colony settled basically by Roman soldiers. The city, though not a capital, was a major city in the region. There was not a big Jewish presence in the city, and we see that in Acts, where Paul, following his own practice of preaching to the Jews first, goes out of the city to pray with the God-fearing women of the city. What he's saying is there's no big synagogue in the city where he can go and preach to the Jews. The religious implication was that Philippi was a Gentile city, that there, were no, there wasn't a big Jewish presence in the city. The new converts to the religion of Christianity, they didn't have much background in Judaism. Religiously, the city... Well, like a lot of Roman cities at the time, it was a melting pot. It was extremely religious, uh, religiously diverse and syncretistic. That is, they just threw things together and see what would work for each individual. Now, this cultural background would have touched every aspect of the lives of people throughout Philippi and especially of the new converts to Christianity in that city. And we need to keep that in mind. Culture matters. Cultures spread ideas through osmosis. When I think about it, cultures are like fridge leftovers. You all know how leftovers mostly taste better the next day because the flavours get into the things that we've been cooking. Whatever we're cooked, yeah, it tastes just better the next day. Cultures work in a similar fashion. 
a culture's ideas just seep into people as they live their daily lives, as they go about their daily business. People don't need to do anything to make it happen. It just happens over time. Ideas just seep in. The Philippian church converts, those who converted to Christianity, whilst living in a city that really had been marinating them in an individualistic decadence for decades. They were just used to being and doing what they wanted and living and thinking religiously as they believed. That would have seeped into every aspect of their lives. And it still happens with us today. The only way to stop it happening is to identify the cultural ideas that you don't want to soak in and then actively resist them. Or you can promote the ones that you are that are in line with your goals, are in line with your values, and you actually um, just make them stronger. That is, you actively add more salt to change your culture to better suit your tastes. Now, going back to the Philippian church, the culture in Philippi was an individualistic, self-centred, and it kept working its way into members of the church. And Paul's letter to the church was written to address a dispute that had arisen in the prominent members of the church who were allowing the individualism of the culture to affect the way they were relating to each other. And we read that about that problem in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. So then... My dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Eudodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There's a fight. There's an argument going on and Paul is writing this letter to deal with a family squabble. We all know what it is like to be in the car with family members that are constantly arguing. Every time I have this vision of driving my car, it's like this beautiful vision of driving on an open freeway with the top down and my beautiful wife by my side and everything's quiet and sunny. But when I'm really driving along, I'm driving along in a van, I've got four children in the back who never stop speaking, who are often constantly arguing and fighting. Ah, you did this, you did that, wah, wah, wah. And the only way to make them silent is to shove a screen in front of them so I can get five minutes of peace. Paul is dealing with one of those family squabbles. He's dealing with how the church is relating to each other. And he's going to outline the reasons why the church shouldn't be this way. How the gospel affects our attitude and the way we should relate to one another. And we're going to consider those three marks of prayerfulness, gospel humility and sacrificial love, how they flow out of the gospel and how they are, should mark every aspect of the Christian life. And so we're going to start with prayerfulness looking at verse uh, 3. Now, there are two parts to Paul's prayerfulness in verses 3 through 11. The first is that in our prayer, we should be thankful for one another. Prayerful thankfulness needs to mark the Christian life. And looking at verse 3, I give thanks to my God for my every remembrance of you, 
always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's opening comment about being thankful for his partners in Philippi is his opening appeal for them to change. He wants the church members to be thankful for one another. Have you ever been very angry at someone, just so annoyed at their behaviour that you, you just didn't want to speak to them, you didn't want to talk to them? We've all been there, haven't we? Now, Paul's remedy to that type of anger, to feeling that way about people, is like a spoonful of terrible medicine without the sugar. He says, pray for them. Have you prayed and given thanks for that person that you're annoyed at? Not the type of prayer that goes, God, I'm thankful for Mr Smith, but couldn't you do something about their behaviour? No, a genuine prayer giving thanks for the person and what they do. It's very hard to be angry at a person that you are genuinely thankful for. Paul continually, continual thankfulness for the members of the church is his sign of his genuine concern for them, of his love for them. But it also acts as a rebuke for the members of the church because in his prayer he is saying, what's good enough for God should be good enough for you. That comes out in verse 6 where Paul says that he is sure God will carry on his good work until the day of completion in Christ Jesus. God works in and through all the members of his people until we have all reached heaven until we all reach that point of completion. Point being, if God is willing to stick with people until he brings them into his eternal home, shouldn't you? Thankfulness can be tough. But it is important to be grateful in a culture that constantly chases and wants more. A lack of thankfulness is a sign of greed and self-centeredness. There is such a strange tendency within rich cultures that have so much that they become ever less thankful. People with great wealth tend to take wealth as an entitlement, as something we deserve. And that wealth we have can so quickly turn into feelings of selfishness and self-centeredness. To the point we go as a culture, I shouldn't have to put up with that thing. I shouldn't have to put up with this issue. I shouldn't have to put up with that person. You hear it all the time in our culture. Remove the toxic person from you. Remove that toxic person, that person that uh, generates negative feelings out of your life. As a church, we can't remove any of God's people. Each person in the church is a gift of God to us. To not be thankful for one another, to not love or care for one another, is to deny God's gift of each other to us. Now, the first thing we must be doing 
is to be prayerfully thanking God for the wonderful people that he has brought into our lives, even when they can be upsetting or annoying or frustrating to that momentary point. Because God is sticking with them and so should we. The second thing Paul calls on for us to pray for is knowledge and discernment. I know Joe has said this and I think he's right. There is this anti-intellectual bias flowing through Western culture and Western Christian culture at the moment. I suspect there are a bunch of reasons for this, but whatever the reasons, their outcome is wrong. We need to be growing in our knowledge and discernment because without them, we cannot love people correctly. My birthday is just around the corner. Yay for me, another day and another reason to celebrate my great ailment of TMB, too many birthdays. But say you loved me and you decided to get me a cake. You spared no expense with this cake. You go down to the Cheesecake Factory and you spend lots of money on this cake because you loved me so much. And opening the box of the cake, I I see that it looks a lot like a chocolate cake. And I think, wow, they love me so much that they brought me a chocolate cake. And so I bite into the cake and upon my very first taste, I find out that it is a coffee cake and my face sours because I don't like coffee cake. Actually, I totally dislike the taste of coffee cake. I can't eat it because I find it so terrible, so bitter, so awful that I just want to spit it out. Then we get into a fight because I'm such a... You get the picture. If we love people... We take the time to find out, to know what are their personal likes and dislikes. We take the time to understand them and their perspective. Interesting, those who are less thankful also tend to be less patient and time is what people need to grow in knowledge and discernment. Whatever the dispute in the church, Paul is calling on the people in the church to be patient and to pray and ask God to give them knowledge and discernment of the situation, that they would understand what is going on. And God, who is generous with his people, God who loves to give, has promised that he will give us whatever we need when we ask it for the right reasons, if we are willing to ask for the right reasons. And Paul is presuming upon the generosity of God to reveal his plans and purposes in the lives of his people. And this is why we must be praying for knowledge and discernment so that we understand the things that matter. We understand what is important. God's people must and will learn over time what is important to God and his plans and his purposes for his people. That's how they can, in verse 10 approve the things that are superior. How many of the squabbles people have today are over the most trivial matters in church? The music in church, the colour of the carpet, the taste of the coffee. So many squabbles of people that they have over are over personal tastes and not over things that matter, eternal things. 
Now, there are times and places where we do need to fight over important issues. But most stuff, most stuff God allows for us to work out the details and to recognise and ignore our personal preferences and be and put our tastes in line with the great and superior things that God has given us. That is the superior thing of the gospel. We are to have agreement on the things that are superior. And when we pray for knowledge and discernment, God has promised to give us a knowledge of the things that are important. God happily gives those things and teaches us to understand what is important. If only we take the time to ask and wait for God's answer in our lives. We must be prayerfully asking God, give us knowledge and discernment and help us to be patient as we wait for the answers. We need to put away our selfish desires, our selfish wants and place God's desires and God's wants at the forefront of our thinking. That requires us to have an attitude adjustment. We need to re-change and reshape the way we think, reshape our values, reshape our wants. Allow God's gospel to work and that works through prayer. So those are the two things we need to do in terms of prayer. That is the first mark. It's prayerfulness, a prayerful thankfulness and a prayer for knowledge and discernment of the things that matter. And as we do that, that will shape our attitude, which really leads us to the second mark in this section. And this comes in verses 12 to 20, a gospel humility and i'm going to read verses 12 and 13 and he's going to be talking about paul is going to be talking about advancing the gospel but as i read it i want you to think about how the advancing gospel should help them resolve their dispute and facilitate their partnership verse 12 i want you to know brothers and sisters what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Here we see what drives Paul, what, what really gets him going, his desire for the gospel to advance in his culture. Given the disagreements in the church, Paul wants the church to see how important it is that the gospel goes out. He is imprisoned for the sake of the gospel and he gives thanks that despite his chains, the whole palace guard knows that he is in chains for the sake of the gospel. Paul even brings up the false motives of people preaching the gospel to cause him problems. Yet despite their false motives, despite their false reasoning, he's still thankful that the gospel is going out. Even though they're doing it for the wrong reasons, though they're preaching the gospel for the wrong reasons, he doesn't care. What matters is the gospel goes out because that's what is important to Paul. That is what's driving him, a desire to see the gospel go out because he knows the value and the power of the gospel. He knows the power of God's word to change people. He wants the church to understand the advance of the gospel needs to be a priority in their lives. It should override any dispute they are having. 
And this is where gospel humility comes into it. Gospel humility places God's thoughts and God's wants above our own. This is what Paul is showing in his retelling of his circumstance. He wants to reorientate the Philippian mindset towards the central importance of the gospel. He wants them to have the same attitude to the gospel that he has. It is having that same attitude of gospel humility, of seeing the gospel go forth, that creates unity in the church. That unity facilitates, in turn, gospel growth. Do you have a grudge against someone or anyone in church? Is there someone who said or did something that was wrong and you, and you haven't let it go? It can be so hard to let things go, especially if you're in the right. But let me tell you a little secret. Anger, disputes, they are more binding than any chain you can ever wear. But God, oh, here is why gospel humility needs to be central with our interactions with each other. The God who forgives our sin, the God who forgives my sin and your sin, is the same God who forgives everyone else's sin as well. If God is willing to forgive all his people, shouldn't we? If the gospel really is a priority, not just for the community out there, shouldn't it also be a priority for the community in here as well? Praying for the advance of the gospel meaning praying for the advance of the gospel in our community, means praying for the gospel, advance of the gospel in our community, in our churches, and in our hearts. For if we want the gospel to go forth out there, we must surely be wanting it to do its work advancing in here. And where the gospel goes and does it work, humility will always follow and so we need to actually want to see the forgiveness of Jesus Christ being applied to all of God's people. And we must be willing to share that forgiveness with one another. And so we want the gospel to be working out there, but we most certainly want the gospel to be working in here as well. The second aspect of gospel humility we need is to have joy at the advance of the gospel. Paul uses the terms rejoice or having joy nine times in this letter to Philippians. Joy is one of those strange words that are really hard to define. It isn't happy, that is to be happy, but that isn't to say that it doesn't have an emotional component as well. But as I thought about it, it is easier to say what, where biblical joy comes from. Biblical joy comes from the knowledge of our salvation by God. It is knowing where we are headed and more importantly, knowing what God has done to bring us into a right relationship with himself. We can have joy even when we feel sad, even when we have negative feelings because 
Joy in God's salvation carries us through those really tough times. I don't think Paul is going, yay, I'm in chains, this is an awesome experience. But he is joyous because he knows what those chains mean. He knows that his chains are for the sake of the gospel, which brings salvation to all people, both for him and for uh, for those around him. That's what makes joy so hard to define because we should experience joy even in the toughest times. It's biblical joy's constant disposition and recognition of God's truths despite our temporal circumstances that really defines its meaning. We have biblical joy because of God's gift that we have all received. Biblical joy, if I was to define it as anything, is contented thankfulness, a delight in God's work and God's love for us in Christ. There is a happiness. There is the serenity, as the guy in the castle would say, the assurance that comes from knowing that God has taken care of our future. That is where our joy should spring from. We are saved people. We are Christ's people. That should bring us eternal joy. And it is because of that attitude we have in Christ, the thankfulness of his gift towards us, that things that he has done for us that drive our delighted thankfulness, the joy we should have at one another for one another. And because of joy, and whilst not being totally emotional but having emotional components people with gospel joy and delight can uh, write out those momentary ups and downs we have in life they can rely uh, write out the relational ups and downs we have with people but central to it all the thing that makes joy work that fuels joy as it were is the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. I said at the start of this talk that culture matters. Culture flows directly out of our theology, our beliefs and views of God. If we are not marinating ourselves in the gospel, then it will come out in our church culture and in our church life. It will come out in our partnership for one another. The great truths of the gospel need to permeate, soak in and enrich every aspect of our lives. We need to be sharing the truths of the gospel and living out its forgiveness for one another. This brings joy and delight for each person towards God and for God for what he has done. We need to be drinking in the gospel drinking in the Kool-Aid, as it were, so as to allow the gospel to shape our views on the world, each other, and most certainly our God who has loved us so much. Our delight, our desire is to tell everyone about Jesus and his death and resurrection. It is the joy of Christians to delight in the salvation and to proclaim that salvation to all people. Having biblical joy changes everything. It is the mark of Christianity. 
because it is the mark of Christ who took up the cross for the sake of his people and joyously did it because he knows where it would lead. But he did it because of the final mark and that is the mark of sacrificial love. I'm going to be reading and looking at this last section, verses 21 through 30. And I want to look at verse 30, but I'm going to read the whole section, but we'll look down at verse 30. But let's read 27 through 30. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way of your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Amazing little passage, this section. But I just want to focus on one verse, and that is verse 27. Living as citizens of heaven. And verse 27 really is the theme of the whole book of Philippians. Live out the citizenship that has been won for us through Christ's salvation. That salvation that came through the sacrificial death of Jesus. God's gift to us in Christ, his death is the ultimate mark of who God is. It's the ultimate characteristic of God. It is to show that sacrificial love that he gave himself for our salvation. It is the mark of who we are to be. It defines our relationship with God and with others. I was reading John's Gospel this week and I saw this verse. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Can you imagine this? Completely fake club, by the way. But can you imagine being at the Macquarie Fields Meat Lovers Annual Barbecue? You turn up to the club barbecue, everyone has their favourite cut of meat, people have their fillets, some have their chicken, people are sharing recipes or the various temperatures and whether they like their marbled, sirloined, rare or medium rare, no one does well done. Uh, they physically threw out the last person who would kill a piece of beef like that. They turn to you and ask, what did you bring to the annual meat lovers annual barbecue? And you answer, I'm a vegetarian, so I thought you'd all like to try lemon-infused tofu with a meat garmish. The room would go silent and everyone would turn to you and look as they held their butchering knives. It would be an awkward moment. In the same way, the sacrificial love of Jesus shown through and given in his death and resurrection for the sake of his people needs to be our defining mark, the love we have for one another. Not a cheap love, a sacrificial love. 
Christ's love for us needs to mark our love for everybody that we are in partnership with. And when our world talks about love, this is the thing they get wrong, I think, mostly. It is the sacrificial part. That is what the world neglects when it talks about love, self-sacrifice. And it clicks back to that first mark about praying for knowledge. Unless we know and understand God's priorities for people, we will never make the sacrifices needed to love one another correctly. Love without knowledge just turns into sentimentalism. People just pleasing others out of being, out of just desiring to do good. But it has no knowledge, it has no understanding and it has no sacrifice. Sacrificial love requires knowing what people need and making sure that we have given them every opportunity to fulfil those needs and putting those needs above our own desires, putting those needs above our own wants. To love like this will always cost. It is always hard. And it will always be hard in our world because our world doesn't want to hear the truth of the gospel. It doesn't want to hear that it needs God's forgiveness. In fact, it will run from the gospel because of its implications for their lives. And so we need to be the ones who do the sacrifice. As Christ has sacrificed himself for us, we need to sacrifice ourselves for the people of the church and for the people of our community. Sacrificial love is the defining mark of Christ and it means to be the defining mark of our lives as well. And it is a mark of love that hurts. Philippians 1 outlines three marks of the Christian life. Each of these marks of prayerfulness, of gospel humility and of sacrificial love, a love that hurts. But these are the marks that facilitate our partnership in the gospel, that a partnership that advances the gospel, advances the gospel out there, but certainly wants to see the gospel advanced in here and most certainly that wants to see the gospel advanced in here. May we pray that God's salvation and the marks of the gospel will facilitate and drive and fuel our partnership until the day of Christ's return. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you're a great and glorious God. We thank and praise you for the death and resurrection of your son who died so that we could live rightly before you. We ask, Father, that we who hear what you have done for us that we will allow the gospel to fuel our partnership, that these marks of prayerfulness, of gospel humility, of sacrificial love will drive each of our aspects in terms of the way we relate to one another. And as we do so, that people will know and see our love and give praise and glory to you and your son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.